Oh, good morning to you, and um, good morning to you who are elsewhere. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that we can be together, and we're glad that we're going to be able to pick apples tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. My firstborn son is like his grandfather on his mother's side, in that he is always involved in projects. There's always multiple projects that are going on at the same time. And the most noticeable project in our midst right now is that he is building a chicken coop that's supposed to look like this. It's the TARDIS from Doctor Who. I wonder where he gets his geekiness. Um, when he's done, it'll look like the police box, and, and maybe someday some geeky chicken rancher will drive off with it in the back of his truck, and we will all give thanks. But, but here's, where it looks like, here's what it looks like now, Circa Friday. Yeah. Um, he's gotten far. Um, there's still work to do. And um, don't go behind the veil. That's the Holy of Holies. Um, you, you might lay an egg. Um, but there it is. It's unfinished. Now, to his credit, he's had work. He's had school. He's had life. He's had the project of growing his hair out. You know, all of these things. I'm really going to razz you for this one. It's going to be good. Um, uh, he's had just, you know, he's been preoccupied with other things. So he just hasn't been able to get around to it, okay? So it's an unfinished work. And in, in the grand scheme of things, it's no big deal. It's only taken up a little bit of my backyard. I can mow around it. It's fine. So it's no big deal. Why, why am I bringing this up? This morning, we are starting a whole new series from a very short book that is as obscure and unread as anything that you might be. But it, too, deals with an unfinished building project. And whereas this unfinished building project is, you know, it's not a big deal. It's not costing us a lot. It's, it's at, at most a minor nuisance. But the building project that is stuck in the one that we're going to look at this morning has far greater consequences for those who have decided to be distracted by other things. In fact, it has a far greater consequence for their very life and their very life together. And we're going to find out how maybe, how just maybe it has some relevance for us. We're listening to the prophet Haggai. It's only two chapters. It's only going to take four weeks. We could do it longer, but we thought, I know my attention span, and so do you. So we're going to do that. But this morning, we're going to listen to his theme. And the main theme of the whole book is to invite Israel to rebuild. Because it's just emerging from exile. It has known disruption and dislocation and disorientation, and now it has an opportunity to begin again. And whereas it is not a perfect analogy that I'm trying to draw between their day and our day, I think there's something relevant to hear from it. And we want to know what that is. We're in Haggai. We're in Haggai chapter 1. And I wonder if you might stretch your legs and strengthen them and listen to it spoken. Would you stand? Our central text for today is found in Haggai 1, 1 through 15. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as their Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. So you have been parachuted into a very different world in a very short book. And, and the only thing that's going to help us understand where Haggai is coming from is understanding his context. So um, let's, let's rewind the tape. Um, remember last fall? <laughs> no. We studied the book of Daniel. So 586 BC and you are there, right? What's happening? Babylon, big, the big dude on the block, decides that it's going to annex Judah and it's going to annex its brain trust back to Babylon. And so they go. And so Daniel is all about how does Israel, or rather Judah in particular, grapple with what it means to be a people in exile. All right, fast forward 50 years. Now Babylon has been displaced by Persia, what is now Iran. Fertile Crescent has always been fertile with strife. And there it is. The, the, the Persians have overcome and now the king of Persia, his name is Cyrus, he has taken pity on Israel, who has been in exile in that land for decades and has decided, you can go home. You can rebuild. You can go. And so they do, including Zerubbabel and Joshua, the priest, the high priest, Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, they head home. What do they do? Let's get to it. Time to rebuild. We've been gone for a long time. Everything is lying languishing. Let's go. And so they do. And then the plot thickens. They've begun the rebuilding project, and then what happens? Oh, the neighbors see that, look who's back in town. Oh, I don't like that at all. In fact, I don't like it so much that I'm going to intimidate you. Ah, you don't know what you're doing. Ah, you're full of it. They start 
hounding them and harassing them and intimidating them. And so Israel's starting to feel like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is our place. This is our time. No, you better cut it out. Well, then it gets worse. Then somebody starts rumor-mongering. They send a letter. The Samaritans, this is why John chapter 4 about the lady at the well who's a Samaritan, why the Israelites are like, whoa, keep your distance. It's because back in time, the Samaritans, they're the ones that send a letter to what is then the king of Persia. His name is Artaxerxes. All these wonderful names you want to name your kids after. They start a rumor. They're saying, you know what Israel's going to do when they're finished building, right? They're going to defy your authority. They're not going to pay taxes. They're going to be these unruly people. And Artaxerxes looks it up and looks back into history and knows what Israel's doing. And he goes, ho, 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 I don't think so, Israel. Ban. Boom. You're stopping. Cutting it down. Shutting it down, boys. Nothing to see here. Disperse. That's it. Well, that goes on for a while. Between 536 and 520, everything is shut down. How does it all shake out? Aha. Here's where it gets wonderful. It's almost like a movie. A letter. A letter is found in the archives of the Persian authorities. They dig down deep in there, and what do they find? They find the original letter from Cyrus from 536 BC that said, not only did it say, go ahead and let Israel build, but bless them in the rebuilding. Let them do it. The ban is over. Breaks over, Israel. We can hop back to it. Ready? Here we go. Crickets. Israel's like, Hmm, I gave it the office already. How about, in a good Yiddish term, meh. They, they're done. They, they don't, they're not really interested anymore. They've, they've kind of said, I, I'm fine with that, but I'm not really interested in that. Okay, so enter Haggai. There's a wonderful line from a, a, from a, a pastor that died here in recent years. His name is John Webster. And he goes, when, whenever there is prophecy, um, there is deafness. Whenever a prophet comes on the scene, it means the people have done this for a really long time. And that's why the prophetic word has got to step up. Haggai steps up and he says unto them, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house. It's been 16 years. 16 years of the the beginning, and then the intimidation, and then the conspiracy, and then the ban, and then that all lifted. And Israel's like, um, you know, it's not really time yet. I, I think maybe just a little bit, maybe a little bit later, we'll, we'll get to it. We're going to opt out. And then Haggai takes off his gloves. And in verse 4, he says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? In other words, you people are ripping out your kitchens and installing the crown molding, but you will not even lift a finger to make sure that it doesn't rain in our worship. You're done. You, you have no interest in that which was at the center of your being. What are you doing? Now, let's pause here for a moment and let's stop the tape and let's see everybody in the scene here and apprise the characters and see how you might be associating them with somebody. Remember, let's, let's go back in the Wayback Machine here to 1985 and the film is Back to the Future. And you remember early in the film, Marty and his girlfriend are walking around Town Square, kind of reminds you of Hendersonville, right? And up comes this woman with a coffee can with a slit in the top and she says, save the clock tower, save the clock tower, right? 
And she tells them, a, a lightning strike took out the clock tower some 30 years ago, and, and Mayor, whatever his name is, wants to have it destroyed. Save the clock tower. And what does Marty and his girlfriend look at her like, oh, woman, give me a break. Like, and all, all they can do to get her off their back is he puts a quarter in the can, and she gives him a flyer, and then that's the end of the scene. And Marty's kind of like, wow, too much. Over the top. Wear me out. And in that moment, you know, you kind of think, save the clock tower, kind of sounds like maybe like Haggai saying, rebuild the temple. And you kind of feel for Marty. It's kind of like, he's just trying to get on with his life. He's about to kiss his girlfriend. Get out of here, woman. He's just trying to have a nice time. But here's the thing. If you know that story, Back to the Future, you, you know that clock tower is more than just a clock. In fact, that clock tower becomes a focal point for Marty's rescue. He's caught back in the 1950s, and if, it didn't, if, the, if the clock tower didn't come into play, he's not going to get home. The clock tower was the focal point of his rescue. Why? Because that's where the lightning comes. Marty at first is kind of like, man, whatever, man, but um, that's where the lightning strikes. Friends, Haggai, Haggai is here talking to Israel, and it is up in Israel's bidness, not because of the building in and of itself, but because of what happens inside of it. What, what the gathered community together, who gather together in the Lord's name, what it happens to do in and, and through and maybe in spite of them, that's where the lightning strikes. It's not about an edifice. Now, we don't know what are all the reasons why uh, Israel has kind of backed off and kind of pulled back. But Haggai is there to say to them, friends, um, do you know what you're giving up when you're choosing not to rebuild the temple? What you are saying is that your identity that you've had for so long doesn't matter. What you're saying is that the storyline that has governed your life for the entirety of your existence as a people, even before you were even alive, you are forsaking that. This is more than a building. This is more than about having nice columns and, you know, gold leaf on the basin. This is about your very storyline. This is about your identity. And when you sacrifice that, you are sacrificing your common life. That place that gave you an opportunity to give praise and lament and offer your sorrows and, and seek forgiveness and, and learn how to be a people, that's what the temple represents. It's not just a building. And here's where we got to pause and go, all right, what does this have to do with us at all? Because look, I don't, I'm not sure so much it's a, it's a point of the text as it is an implication. Israel has pulled back. And we're not exactly sure why they have pulled back. But they have gotten out of the habit. And for some of it, it's totally understandable. If you've been intimidated by it, if you've been the target of a conspiracy in it, if you have been banned at a structural level from it, after a while, you're kind of like, I've learned to get out of the habit. And I've given up on it. But I think the implication of it is this. Friends, there will always, in any day, both that day and our day, there will always be a pull to pull back. There will always be times in which you will, thoughts that you have, things that have happened, that will shrivel your interest in being the people of God. We talk about revival. There'll be, why do we talk so much about revival? Why did our song, why did our service begin with a prayer for revival? 
because we all know that there's a part of us that wants to give up on that at any number of times, and there's all sorts of reasons why we muster to take us there. Modern life was already demanding before COVID descended. You have schedules, you have lives, you have priorities, you have relationships, and all of those are in play. And then when, when COVID hits or whatever else might be in the way, all of those things just get amplified. And remember that word that we were searching for about what we were all feeling, both kids and adults alike? It's this word languishing. Everything feels heavier. Everything feels harder. Yes. Yes. For reasons that we can explain and for reasons we can't. And so I understand the reasons why would, you would want to pull back. Now, let me be very clear here. For those of you that, have, that feel a sense of apprehension and pulling back because of an issue about safety, I am not talking to you. You can take a nap, doodle, whatever you want to do. For, I'm not talking to you in that moment. I'm talking about issues that lead us to the struggles that we feel, the, the demands that are upon us, and, and, and even not even the demands. Maybe, maybe the pull to pull back is because of, of decisions that have been made. Maybe, maybe you think we've been too cautious. Maybe you think we haven't been cautious enough. Maybe you think we've been too political or haven't been political enough. Maybe you think we haven't been socially conscious enough or that we've been talking too much about being socially conscious. I don't know what that is, but whatever those decisions that you have a struggle with at every moment, whatever leads you to want to pull back, here's the discipline. You always have to ask yourself, why am I doing that? You always have to. You always have to ask yourself, does it justify wanting to drift away from what it means to be a family. Because there will always be a pull to pull back. And Haggai chapter 1 is just another storyline in which that plays out, and, and, and therefore, how does God intervene in order to speak to a condition like that? But, but, but let's get back to the text here for just a moment. Because Haggai kind of surfaces what is that real reason why, why Israel is kind of pulled back from, from pursuing that which is at the center of their identity, the, the very outworking of their storyline, um, the very center of their common life together. He, he says it in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. What Haggai is saying to Israel is that their attention to their own world, their own private world, has begun to eclipse their interest in the maker of the world. Their, the circle of their concern has narrowed. Their life has contracted. And they're cool with that. They've learned to live like that. Now look, home and family and clubs and teams... That's all excellent stuff. They're blessings. They're gifts. They're where we get life in many ways. And that's all good. But the problem is when, when those worlds become our whole world, then something has shifted in us and maybe we didn't even know. We've come to focus almost entirely on our own self-development, our own self-interest. And at, at some point, you're probably listening to me going, so? Everybody does that. Why is Haggai getting all ornery here? Why are you getting all ornery here? Why am I yelling? I get it. I understand. There's plenty of excellent things to devote your attention, your skill, your money, your talents, your aptitudes to. 
awkward stuff. But here's the thing. Haggai is out to help awaken Israel and I think awaken us who can fall into um, a temptation to kind of make it all about us. He says it in verse 6. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He is saying, look around everybody. Look what you have. Look at all that you have. And then ask yourself this. Did you think it would be everything you thought it would be? Has it lived up to the expectation? And if it hasn't, why isn't it enough for you? You are always adding to yourself. But do you know what the Lord is doing? He is frustrating your plans to think that you don't need him anymore. He is frustrating it. And that is his kindness. And so, yes, the, the, the one implication of Haggai 1 is that there is always going to be a pull to pull back. But there's a second implication of this. And, and don't freak out by, the, by the, the jargon here, but there's this. There will always be a diminishing return on your investment in yourself. Now, don't panic. Diminishing return, what is that? It's an economics term. And for you economists, for you CPA folk, you, there, there, there is a, an observed reality that the more you invest in something, you get a payoff. But at some point in the life of any system, in the life of any life, the, at some point, your investment in it does not provide you the same return on the investment that it did at first. You keep going and you keep going and you try to get more from it. And then you keep going and you add more and you drive more. And then at some point you realize, I, I'm getting nothing out of this anymore. Lay's potato chips, get this. Bet you can't eat just one. And then you eat 12 and you realize, I think I'm going to need another bag to get the same hit that I got from the first Lay's potato chip. And that plays out in every form of life. That's what diminishing returns are. And, and, and Haggai is saying, isn't God good that he has baked that into the system? You go after more and more and more and you realize at some point, I'm not sure that I'm really getting all that I thought I was going to get. Why won't I listen? When you feel that drive, you realize that there is something up in you that you can't quite put your finger on. And lest I keep us in the economic realm, let, let me give you a little help from some boys out of Concord, North Carolina that you've heard us play from before. There's actually a wonderful song. We'll pray for you, play for it, you in its entirety at the end of the service, but I just want to play an excerpt, just an out, a minute of it. It's from the Avid Brothers. It's from a song called Ill With Want. I'm sick wanting And it's evil how it's got me
not just prophets, it's poets that are telling us the same thing. There's something about us that we're just going to keep going and keep getting and keep adding because we think that'll do it. And then we look back and we go, wow, something has me. Something has me. Trying to be something I don't want to be. And that's what's going on with Israel. And that's what is always going to be available to us. The drive to add. And we're clueless. We're clueless when enough will be enough. We're trying to fill that hole. And every time we try to fill it, we only make it bigger. There's another folk song by Bob Frankie who says, um, there's a hole in the middle of the prettiest life, so the lawyers and the prophets say, not your father, not your mother, not your lover, not the highway will ever make it go away. Kids, not your boyfriend, not your girlfriend, not your Instagram likes, not the medal, not the certificate, not the degree will ever make it go away. You try to fill that hole, you will only deepen it more because there will always be a diminishing return on the investment in yourself. And our problem is we make it that our life's project. So, fine, if that's the project that doesn't work, then what is the project that we all need to embrace? Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Breaks over. Get back to work. Get back to rebuilding. You know what you're supposed to do. You, you know the covenant you made with me a long time ago, but breaks over. Um, and if, if you're here and you don't believe in God, I am glad you're here. And I hope that you would introduce yourself. I, I have special regard for anybody that comes and sits with a bunch of us on a day like that when you could be sleeping. But to the untrained ear, you listen to a moment like that and you go, wow, this God who you praise sounds like more like a narcissist than a deity. Build a temple to you so that you might be glorified? You sound rather insecure. Oh, maker of all things, why, why is this so important for you? Actually, it's not so important for you as it is for those who might come like him, for him. Because when we're talking about making God the center of all things, there's something that follows from that, and the question is what? And for those of you that are freaking out about Haggai saying, or the Lord saying through Haggai, go and build the temple to me, pause for just a second. Kids, when you come in class and you sit down and the teacher stands up to teach, what do you do? You be quiet. Why? Because you think that they have something to offer you that will prepare you for life. Hopefully. Will this be on the test? When, when fire breaks out in your house and the fireman shows up and you get out of the way and you let them do whatever they want, why? Because you believe they have something to rescue you, to do something to put out the fire. You do that. You, you get out of the way. Why is it that you will get on a stretcher and allow a doctor to cut into you? Because you believe that they have something for you, that they're out to heal, that they're out to help, that they're out to love you through their skill. 
In every one of those circumstances, you are submitting to them. You are either getting quiet or making way or letting becoming most vulnerable before them because in every situation, no, you're not bowing down before them. No, you're not worshiping them, but you are honoring them. And in every form of that, you are submitting to them out of honor for what they have for you. Something follows from your honor. Friends, something follows from the worship of God at the center of being. You know what those things are? I'll tell you. Rebuild the temple. Restore them to the center of your being. You know what matters? You know what what comes from that? What comes from the worship of God is finally seeing each and every one of you in the room as one who is made in his image and therefore believing that they all have dignity no matter how much you might despise them. That'll help. You know what follows from believing that God is at the center of all things? It's believing that there is actually meaning to everything, meaning and value, and therefore You are therefore accountable to not wasting what you have and believing that what you've received is in fact a gift. You know what follows from rebuilding the temple of your life and believing that God is at the center of all things? It is believing that in him is both mercy and justice in the same person and therefore I am accountable to enacting that wherever I am able and the opportunity affords me. But you know what also follows from worship of the Lord? It is believing that you are utterly dependent on this idea that you are utterly dependent on grace to have breath in your lungs, to have food on your table, and to even have hope in the midst of circumstances that you would not ascribe to your worst enemy. It follows. It follows from that. And Haggai is saying, here's your project. Rebuild the temple. And it's a project with a promise. Verse 7, I am with you. And the reason we hear a promise like that and don't just think of it as something that you're supposed to hear in the Bible or something that a prophet is supposed to say or something that is just sort of a nice, sort of, you know, saccharine, sweet encouragement that could show up in a Hallmark card. You know why we think it's more than that? It's because there was someone else that spoke of it and proved it in a way that Haggai never would or never could. Jesus himself was scandalized by worship that had been distorted into a commercial project or in a way that would exclude the Gentiles from being able to worship. Jesus was the one who could warn us all of the seductions of wealth and of avarice. Jesus was the one who said, you can build your house on something. If you build it on sand, please don't be surprised when the house falls down. And then Jesus himself would die and rise to prove that he was right, and to also prove that he was worthy of worship. Jesus is the greater Haggai with a greater message that even Haggai could offer us. And it's in Jesus that we find our project. What is your project? Look, this house is built, okay? We're, um, we're done here. Now, we may, need, we, we may need the roof rebuilt in time, so do any of you have a long ladder? Um, that'll happen, but... For the most part, we're good here. So what's the application for you, church? It's this. Build up the church. Be built up by the church. Now that might sound like an entirely Patrick-serving kind of thing. Oh, great, we work on your project so you can feel better about yourself. This is not about me. Because in its good is your good. In its good is the world's good. Because this place is meant to prepare you to be out in that world. 
It's what Peter said, what we covered last summer. For you are being built up into a spiritual house. This is not about sitting and learning and having the, you know, the, the, the too long TED talk. This is about you being built up into a spiritual house and building up that house. What does that mean? It's not complicated. In fact, you know, go, go hop on to Google this afternoon and just do your word search. Find your Bible program and do a little word search in the New Testament for the phrase build up. And you're going to find scads of examples of how in the New Testament that seems to be a priority of the church. It's not peripheral. How do you build up the church? How do you be built up by it? This is not complicated. These things called the means of grace. Where you wrestle with the scriptures, you study them. Where you apprentice in prayer. You have to learn how to pray. I have to learn how to pray. Maybe I usually have to, maybe the hardest part about learning how to pray is to believe in that it was necessary. You should partake of the sacraments whenever they are available. And you should gather with the saints whenever you have the opportunity. Insofar as you're able Those are the means of grace by which we are built up by the church. Those are just some. Those are the major ones. How do you build up the church? Remember this slide? My my objective is for you to be able to reproduce this slide with a blindfold on by the time we've seen it a number of times, right? These are all the ways in which you might participate in the rebuilding of this church. If you just want to come meet us in the pavilion at 945 on Sundays to pray for the church, that's building it up. If you want to participate in one of these groups in order to learn more about the convictions of the gospel, that's building it up. If you want to nominate someone to be an elder or a deacon or a deaconess, that's helping to build it up. Who who demonstrates those qualities, those qualifications, as you'll see on the website? That's building it up. If you want to help us dream about the future, if you want to help us to send people, if you want to help us to give, kids, listen up. I know a lot of the time you sit around here and you go, This is cool. I enjoy being with each other. But what's my point about being here? Here's the point. Build it up. Help us build up this place. It's as much your responsibility as anybody who's an adult. You are built up by it. You build it up. But if you might indulge me in a little pastoral privilege, as I have meditated upon, I think, what is the implication and application of this passage, I think there is one thing that you and I most need that perhaps the whole church needs in a season like this, and it's a whole new spiritual discipline that you may never heard of before, and it's this. Steel man. It has nothing to do with Clark Kent. It is not a superpower, but I would argue it is as much a spiritual discipline as anything that you might do. And what is it? It's the difference between this and a straw man. You know what a straw man is? You differ with somebody, and you come up with the worst examples of their arguments or the representation of that person that you differ with, and you attack it, and it's easy. You light it on fire, and you go, see? Silly, ridiculous, vile, benighted. That's straw manning. You know what steel manning is? Steel manning is finding the best arguments that somebody that you differ with has and coming to an understanding of them such that when you say it and they hear it, they go, you get me. Friends, in case you missed it, in our ecosystem right now, in the whole world, differing has never been higher. And differing, more often than not, devolves into debating, which devolves into disparaging, which devolves into drifting, which devolves into hating. And most of the time, there is no interest in understanding. 
there is only interest in defending one's place. What is steel manning? It is finding the best reasons, the best arguments for why they think what they think is true and legitimate. And you being able to articulate them in a way that they would go, yes, that's right. That's where I'm coming from. Friends, that's hard. Friends, that's not natural. Friends, that's actually in distinction or in contrast with what your, your natural impulses will naturally do. And whereas even if you do that, it might not change anybody's mind, but I sure know what it will do. It'll keep you from squaring off. Because what it demonstrates is respect, what it demonstrates is dignity, and above all, what it demonstrates is love. And love covers a multitude of arguments. And not only will it help to build this church, it will be an argument for it. Because Lord knows what I see in the outside world is the anything but steel manning and certainly no interest in it. And what if the church came to be known as those who embraced that spiritual discipline in all that they did? Kids, this is as much for you. You can debate. If you turn it into a Olivia Rodrigo is the best new artist, and the other one says, no, she's not. No, yes, she is. That's not a debate. Tell me why you think that. It's a skill we all have to learn. And this is a funny way to end a sermon. But beloved and welcome guests, it is the spiritual discipline of our age that we perhaps most need to cultivate. Because in that is love. And in that love will prevail. And as it said at the end of that Bob Frankie song, if God felt a hammer in the palm of his hand, then God knows the way we feel. And then love lasts forever. Forever and for real. Let's build. Let's pray. Father, help us not to make what we differ over more than what we share in common in you. And let us then become a community that believes that, embraces that, enacts that, demonstrates that, and shows as a model for it that we might, in this age of great differing, for understandable reasons and important ones, that we might show how love is actually stronger than we thought. In the name of Jesus, who looked past all our sin and died for us anyway. In his name we pray, amen. You are a chosen race, church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for we were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The healing mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You're dismissed.